If you would open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. So, my preaching plan for the next 12 weeks is to take up the 12 minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And I plan to do that in 12 weeks, which means we'll take up a minor prophet a week. So I want to give a little background of why I'm doing this, but, but as long as we, we have a deal, you cannot, what I'm about to say for the next few minutes, you can't, you can't count it against my sermon time. I haven't started my sermon yet. This is all introduction to the minor prophets of why we're doing the minor prophets. Okay. So why the minor prophets? Why not the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah? Because aren't the minor prophets kind of like minor league? No. The reason they're minor prophets is simply the length of what they wrote. We can think of the major prophets like Isaiah who wrote 66 chapters. Minor prophets like Hosea, the longest of the minor prophets, who wrote 14 chapters. So it's, it's not the strength of what they have to say, the message to us, it's the length of the books that they wrote. And it's important for us to understand some history behind the minor prophets. So, minor prophets, the 12 of them, ministered during a period of roughly 300 years in the history of Israel. So, let's go back in time, roughly to 1000 BC, before Christ. King David was king over the 12 tribes of Israel, and at that time period, everything was going well. And then after King David, his son took the throne, that would be Solomon. And then after Solomon died, then there was a, uh, a bit of a civil war that took place in the history of God's people. So long story short, God's kingdom, the 12 tribes of Israel's, w- were divided into the north and the south. So we had the kingdom of Israel in the north, uh, comprised of the 10 tribes of Israel, and the capital of that would be, uh, the capital city was Samaria for Israel in the north. Then you had Judah in the south, capital city of Jerusalem, made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Unfortunately, neither the kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, or the southern kingdom, of Judah was faithful to God. So God brought about punishment by way of other nations. Now, I refer to these as the ABCs of exile, okay? So first, A, Assyria. Assyria conquered the Israelites in the north, the northern kingdom, and then exiled, scattered the northern kingdom into other people groups. Then B, Babylonians, they came along roughly a couple of hundred years later, conquered Judah in the south, exiled, the, uh, exiled God's people in Babylon. But then there's this, this glimpse, this great glimpse of hope with C, Cyrus of Persia, I cheated a little bit there, with Cyrus of Persia who gives this great hope because he allows the Jewish people to return back to the city of Jerusalem to build the city and the temple. So that's the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So with all that, what role did the prophets play? 
They were both foretellers and forthtellers. By foreteller, meaning at times when we think of a foreteller, we think of somebody who predicts the future. And there are aspects of that in the minor prophets, but it's very minor, actually, compared to their role of foretellers. If you think of a foreteller, think of a preacher who is reminding people of the character and the law of God and calls to us, uh, and, and the call for a response of faith and obedience. Okay, we could also say they were covenant enforcers, or you could say a covenant prosecutor, at times building a case against God's people for their uh, injustice, their oppression, their lack of faithfulness. So, reminding God's people of God's covenant, his blessings, as well as the curse. And, and as I mentioned covenant, I'm going to talk more about that in the book of Hosea this morning, but, uh, but for right now, I want us to keep another word in mind, and this would be the word of conditionality. Okay, so when we think about the minor prophets, conditionality, here's what we mean by that. Me being people who use the word conditionality. Conditionality is, at times the prophets will declare a judgment against God's people and say, it's coming, but that there's conditions to it. It depends on if the people repent. It's kind of like if I say to you all, okay, I'm going to count to 10, you better run and hide. Or, or if, I, and actually, let me do it this way. I'm going to count to 10, I'm going to get you. That's your cue that you better run and hide. So I will get you unless you hide really well, right? There's a condition to it, if that didn't make sense. We're going to keep going. Um, essentially, it's the question of, at times there's a strong declaration of judgment coming unless God's people repent. We see that throughout the prophets. And then their mission of the minor prophets, to call to the repentance, to warn of judgment, but to provide hope. And finally, why are the minor prophets important? They point back to the covenant that God established with his people. And again, I'll get to that in a second with Hosea. So they point back to this glorious covenant, this promise. But they also point forward in hope to the fulfillment of that covenant through the Messiah. They also, the minor prophets, include timeless truths about humanity and our sin, about God's glory and his grace, about hope, things that we have to cling to. These are timeless truths written for them back then and there, written for us here and now. And we'll see major themes throughout the prophets, like God's sovereignty, God's holiness, God's love, as well as various attributes of God that we must cling to. Okay, that was a lot, but I've uh, taken an extra step. On our website, under sermon resources, I have posted an article. It is not one that I wrote. A good friend of mine, Bob Thune, a pastor in Omaha, Nebraska, wrote a great intro to the Minor Prophets. I summarized a lot of that but it's listed there on our website under Sermon Resources if you want to geek out more on the minor prophets. And so with that, the book of Hosea. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 3 this morning. So the prophets, as I mentioned, they covered that 300-year time period, but various prophets wrote some to the northern kingdom, some to the southern kingdom. Okay. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, 
prophet to Israel. And this was at a time when Israel was on the brink of disaster. Israel was experiencing great outward prosperity, but inwardly very corrupt, very spiritually shallow. They were beginning to go down the road of forsaking their God. And so Hosea is ministering to Israel before Assyria conquers them. And if you're reading through Hosea, you will notice that um, Israel is referred to by other names. One prominent name through the book of Hosea is Ephraim. And that's one of the tribes of the northern kingdom, the most prominent tribe. And so if you read that, just recognize, and this morning there might be a few passages that have Ephraim. That's synonymous with Israel. Hosea is 14 chapters long, and we're going to cover it all this morning. And the way we're going to do that is our base camp is going to be uh, chapter 3. And from there, we will explore other aspects of Hosea. But a pretty good summary of the book of Hosea is in chapter 3, verse 1. Before I read, let's pray together. And my prayer will be one of Paul's prayers out of Philippians chapter 1. We'll take his prayer and we'll make it our own. So, Father, as we come to your scripture, we pray that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that we may approve what is excellent, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, and this to the glory and praise of God. Amen. In Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you." For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, let me just begin with this question. Um, so whether you are married or not, what is the best marriage advice you've ever heard? I'll give you three seconds. Time is up. Whatever came to your mind, I'm going to pretty much guarantee it is not the message of Hosea 3, chapter 1. <laughs> Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, do not get caught up on the cakes of raisins yet. We will get there. Okay? We're in chapter 3, and the Lord says, go again to love a woman. So the question is, what happened the first time when Hosea went to love this woman? So this would take us back to Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. And what I want to do is quickly breeze through Hosea chapter 1 and 2, to build the case of what's going on before we get to Hosea 3. So Hosea 1, chapter 1, verse 2. 
When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So we went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now just briefly, I realize uh, we're using uh, the word whoredom in here. So for the little ears in the cornfield, so to speak, whether in here or watching online, let's just say, uh, if you're tempted to say to your parents, what does that mean? Just uh, Gomer, the wife, was uh, very, very bad and naughty. And let me just go on. So, um, this is a shocking, this is a shocking command. God commands Hosea to marry a woman who will be unfaithful to him. And why? God desires to use this marriage of Hosea and Gomer to illustrate God's relationship with his own people, the Israelites. And when we think about this relationship between God and his people, there should be a word that jumps to our mind. If not this morning, then my hope is by the time we finish this, uh, this series on the Minor Prophets, the word covenant comes to our mind. When I think of covenant, I think promise on steroids, okay? God established a covenant with his people. We see this throughout the scriptures. In the very beginning, God established a covenant with Adam, And actually, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 speaks of this covenant with Adam. And then this covenant was extended to Noah, and then to Abraham, and then to Moses. And this is is a covenant of God saying he will be faithful to his people. In fact, when we get to Exodus chapter 6, that is when the Israelites are oppressed in Egypt. And God comes to them and he tells Moses, I have heard my people groaning. And essentially, he says, I am going to come to deliver them with power. And what he says to them, he says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so this is known as the covenant formula. We see this uh, abbreviated this way throughout Scripture. I will be your God. You will be my people, is this covenant formula. So if we think of it this way, think of the covenant as God establishing a marriage covenant with his people, but there's a problem. God's people are not holding up their end of the deal. God continues to be faithful, his people continue to not be faithful. And so, what God is gonna do is take this, uh, this marriage of Hosea and Gomer and use it as a parable, okay? Now, when I say parable, I think of parables of Jesus, real stories that involved real events, But a parable is one to to shock us, to get our attention. And every time I think of parable, there's one that comes to my mind. I've used this before in here, but to illustrate the point, I'll use it again. Parable was turned on me once, my freshman year, in high school. I was in science class. The teacher was Coach Schweitzer, the wrestling coach. Not a man to be messed with. So he was in the middle of his lecture, and something just funny came to my mind. And I'm like, how can I withhold this from the class? So I blurted out whatever was on my mind because I thought it was going to be really funny. And not one person in the class laughed. They actually all turned to me and looked at me like I was the village idiot. And then Coach Schweitzer looked at me like I was the village idiot. And he, he literally paused, felt like forever, looked up, and he finally said this. It was, Donahoe, I once had a dog that barked when I didn't want it to, and I shot it. 
How does that apply to your life? Okay, that was it. Like, I got it. I got the parable. And that caused me to think I should shut my yapper, right? So this is what God is doing with the, the, the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. This is call, this is, God is seeking to get their attention. And ask the question, what does faithfulness look like? And to warn them against unfaithfulness. But how? How can, um, how can God possibly ask this of Hosea? To marry a woman who will be unfaithful. Some understand this passage as a command from God that Hosea would marry a prostitute. But the word whoredom actually has a wider range of, mari- uh, of meaning than just prostitute, including um, adultery. So, and Hosea 3.1 refers to Gomer as an adulteress, which again serves as a parable for the unfaithfulness Uh, lack of faithfulness to the Lord. So it's likely that Gomer was not necessarily a prostitute, but actually just became promiscuous after their first child, after their marriage. And again, this would be consistent with Israel, who started off faithful to the Lord, but then was led astray. The shock value continues, because as the story goes, Hosea uh, Hosea, um, marries Gomer, She conceives and gives birth to a son, okay? She gives birth to a son, then a daughter, then a son. And the names here are really significant. First, uh, well, first, with Hosea, that name comes from the same verb as Joshua or Jesus. In other words, to save or deliver, which is interesting. But then as we look at the names of the kids, the first one, uh, in verse 4, God says, call his name Jezreel. Like, uh uh-oh, um, this, uh, you may think, ah, Jezreel, that has a nice ring to it. Uh, no, no, it doesn't. And in fact, if, you know, there's always every year popular baby name books, like best baby names, most popular of 2021, like this name would not have been listed of best baby names in 700 BC because this is actually a tragic name. The name is based on events that took place in the valley of Jezreel. This is first, according to 1 Kings 21 or 2 Kings 9 and 10, or potentially both those passages. I'll just summarize real quick. The 2 Kings chapter 9, there is this horrible shedding of blood in Israel when Jehu, uh, or Jehu took the throne, and God had not forgotten that egregious sin. Or in 1 Kings 21, That's the story of Ahab, who promoted Baal worship. Baal was like this weather fertility god. Okay, a lot of evil wrapped up with Baal. But King Ahab is promoting Baal worship. And not only that, but he has Naboth, a godly man, murdered because Ahab wanted his vineyard that was located in Jezreel. So Jezreel, in a sense, is a fitting name for Israel right now in their spiritual decline, Israel being a place of sins that they are tolerating, that they should not tolerate, Baal worship, forsaking God. So the name Jezreel is going to get people's attention. Next, verse 6, God says, name, Gomer conceives again, daughter's name, no mercy. 
signifying that God will no longer have mercy on the Israelites who continue in their spiritual adultery, though there is hope for Judah still. And then verse 9, Gomer conceives again, the son is named, not my people. Now that is tragic, because if you recall the covenant formula, I will be your God, you will be my people. In other words, I will be faithful to you, I call you to be faithful. This is a forsaking, a turning away from that covenant from God, saying, I am rejecting you as, your, as my people because of your sin. Now again, remember the term conditionality. These are warnings so that, I, uh, so that Israel will turn from their wicked ways. Okay, to, okay, so to add insult to injury, it's likely that the second and third children uh, are not Hosea's children. And with that, um, no mercy, not my people, were children of adultery. And we find this from, um, we're told that Gomer bore him a son, Jezreel, and that word bore, or that phrase bore him a son is not repeated with the other two children. And in Hosea 2 verse 4, they were referred to as her children and children of whoredom. So again, this is a shocking story, and we may be tempted to ask the question, how can God do this, expect this of Hosea? But here's the right question, and here's a better question. What? What do we need to learn as God's people from this story? Because if we read this as a tragic story about this dude named Hosea, we've missed it. Or if we read this story and we say, oh, I get it, this is a parable. Yes, Hosea is God, Gomer are the Israelites, and man, weren't they foolish? Well, yes, but we've still missed it. But if we, in fact, read this story and we say, oh, if left to myself and my sinful nature and my sin tendencies, I'm Gomer. But... Wow, the unbelievable love of God. If that's our response, then we've nailed it. This is a book about God's radical, redeeming love. But we have to begin first with an understanding of the spiritual condition of Gomer. In other words, the Israelites. In other words, us, if we're left to ourselves and to our sin. So with that, um, the spiritual adultery is the, is the main theme of the book of Hosea. And verse 1-2 says, they committed great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Okay, God's people forsaking the Lord. And so the question is how? And if I could just uh, put three words on this. Idolatry, commandments, and knowledge. Okay, the first one is idolatry. And when I talk about idolatry, see, back in the day, they literally had craftsmen that would build these false gods, these shrines that they worship. They looked at them as their gods. Now, we may not have a shrine in our home, but again, idolatry, we can broaden to anything that draws our heart away from the living God. You know, as Calvin, a theologian, mentioned, our hearts are idol factories, right? So, with that 
chapter 2, verse 5 is a good summary of Gomer's idolatry. For their mother, Gomer, has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Okay, so this idolatry is a slap in the face to God because it is God who gives all good gifts, correct? But what Gomer is doing is she's attributing all these gifts that she's receiving or these blessings to Baal, to a false god, and she's using these to worship Baal. In fact, that cakes of raisin um, that was mentioned in chapter one, or actually... Yes, in chapter 3, that is actually most likely a reference to a ritual in in, in a Baal-worshipping context. So, I imagine Gomer did not wake up one morning and say, huh, let me think, what am I going to do today? Let's see, I'm going to forsake the Lord and I'm just going to worship Baal, follow him wholeheartedly. That's not really how idolatry can work. It's more likely that the Canaanite culture just rubbed off on Gomer over time. And maybe think of it in in, in this way. So the the northern kingdom did not have the temple. Remember, the temple was in Jerusalem. That's where God's people would worship. So Hosea is talking to the uh, the northern kingdom. They did not have the temple, but there were altars of foreign gods everywhere. So you could see where over time, these altars of false gods may be enticing. Let's apply it here. So this is our temple, so to speak, right? Our sanctuary. Um, And we have this day, the Lord's Day on Sundays where we come together. And it's, maybe it's a little easier on Sunday mornings not to chase idols, right? Because we're hearing the truth of God. But then we have six other days that we're out in the world And idolatry is all around us, and the world presses it in on us, right? And so what does it look like to be tempted to chase uh, false lovers, false gods? I love how um, Nancy Guthrie, in her book on the prophets called The Word of the Lord, Seeing Jesus in the Prophets, I like how she talks about this idolatry. She says, do you find it hard to see yourself as one who has loved other gods, The things we idolize are not necessarily bad things. They're often good things that have become ultimate things. They're often legitimate desires that have morphed into destructive demands. Whatever we believe we must have for our happiness is an idol. We take something good, such as meaningful work, and turn it into an ultimate thing warped with ambition and greed. We take something good, such as parenting, Make it into an ultimate thing as we allow the, our, identity, our identity to be defined by our children's success and failure. The question we have to ask ourselves is, have I allowed something else or someone else, anything else, to become the love of my life in the place that belongs to God alone? As we begin to get honest with ourselves about our true loves and passions, we're forced to admit that we can see ourselves in Gomer. Idolatry can be subtle, subtle shifts of our affections. And, and, and my guess is none of us wakes up any morning and says, 
you know, I'm going to go ahead and place my faith and my hope in other false gods. But we must always watch our hearts, for idolatry always desires to creep in. The next word, so that was idolatry, the next word of commandment. We see in chapter 4 gives us a fuller picture of Hosea, her lack of faithfulness. We see this in in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and the committing of adultery. So right here, what we see with the Israelites is this is language of covenant. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love or knowledge. That's all about covenant faithfulness. But then what follows that is the breaking of the commandments. Swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. All of those are the second half of the Ten Commandments. And the reality is, if we forsake the first four commandments of loving God, we will tend to then forsake or that will impact the last six commandments of what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself. We see this in the culture all around us. We see this in our own lives. But then, what's the heart behind this idolatry? What's the heart behind the breaking of the commandments? In verse 4-1, there is no knowledge of God in the land. And then look at verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This is a key theme throughout the book of Hosea, of a right knowledge of God. This is not, this is not just head knowledge. This is not just having right theology. This is a theology that leads to intimacy with the Lord. It's a true understanding of his character that leads to humility, leads to deeper love. That is what Hosea is talking about. This is what the desire desire of the Lord for this deep kind of love and knowledge of God. And here's our reality. We cannot grow in this knowledge if our Bibles are collecting dust, and the intimacy with the Lord that we have is probably shown by our prayer life or lack of. So for us, it's always a good indicator, a question of with the Bible and with prayer, what is our, how are we growing in the knowledge of God again and not just information? Soft hearts, hearts that love God, hearts that love others. The key for us really is growing in knowledge. And with that, I mean the knowledge of God as our radical, redeeming, it's a radical, redeeming love, his grace, of knowledge of what that really looks like. And we see this throughout the book of Hosea. In fact, there's three therefores in chapter two. I'm just going to mention them briefly. And I want to frame this. Um, the, the chapter two is framed with these therefores. These therefores are as Gomer is forsaking or the Israelites are forsaking God, what does God do? What, what, how does he 
manifest his love towards him. The first, the first therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. That's what God says about Gomer. In other words, I will set barriers around Gomer so that she cannot rush into sin. And we see that at times in our own lives. May not even be fully aware, but it could be the conviction of sin that's brought about in our lives. Could be a verse that comes to our mind when we're tempted to sin. Could sin. It could be a conversation, a timely conversation, a warning about uh, where we are headed. Right? God seeks to hedge us up. The other one in verse nine. Therefore, I will take back. And then there's this list of things that God will take back from Gomer. And it's actually uh, a fascinating just a fascinating look at Gomer who is using these gifts of God and worshiping Baal. And God says, I'll take it all back and we'll see what Baal can really do, this false God. And sometimes by God's grace, he will withhold or remove blessings from our lives in order to get our attention. And then this final, therefore, I will allure her Bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly. That's verse 14. I will allure her. So, so far, God's saying, I'll set a hedge about them, right? To keep them from going off path and sinning. I will withhold blessings from them. But this one is tender. I will allure. And this is based on, when it talks about the the wilderness, this is based on Exodus 19, when God delivers his people, whom he loves, out of Egypt, out of oppression, takes them through the Red Sea into the wilderness of Sinai, and it is there that God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. That's what God's saying. His treasured possession. That's how God looks at his people. God will do whatever it takes. And this brings us to chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman. And we can assume, there's, there's debate over this, but I believe we can assume this is Gomer. Love a woman, Gomer, who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Can you imagine Hosea? What? After all this, I have to go back, pursue Gomer? God says, yes, put my love on display because I haven't given up on my people. Go love Gomer the way that I love my people. And so verse 3, 2, please catch this. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethic of barley. I bought her. So apparently, Gomer's lovers were not so good to her after all because she wound up indebted somehow. Most believe it was in, in a slave trade. One of the ways that you would find yourself in a slave trade is because you're indebted. So Gomer finds herself on an auction block. Okay, this would be in the marketplace. Our understanding of this is that um, when people 
were up for bid as slaves on an auction block. They would be stripped naked, and the bidding would start. So here we have Gomer. We have her shameful. We, she's desperate. And the bidding begins, and Hosea buys her back. Hosea buys her back. Verse 3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. This is, again, language of loyalty. You're mine. I will be faithful to you. I'm calling you to be faithful to me. And then we see in verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. So what we have is this word dwell twice of God is calling his people to dwell with him, but there's also a warning here. They're going to dwell, but without a king to lead them, at least right now. There will be a future king, but this is language of exile. And so how do we apply this? Here's the picture that comes to my mind. If we're left to ourselves, we will run to other lovers, other false gods, lesser lovers, lesser gods. And at times we may think our sin, our breaking of the commandments is no big deal, but it is to God. It's committing spiritual adultery against God. And so here's the picture in my mind. It's you and I on the auction block full of guilt and shame and desperate. And there's a bidder. It's Satan who is one of the bidders. He's like, oh, I'll take him. I'll take her. Glad, glad to have them. They're unfaithful anyway. I'll take them. But there's another bidder, right? It's Jesus who says, no, this one has been on my mind and my heart before the foundation of the world. I want us to think about God's redeeming love. This one's been on my mind and my heart before the foundation of the world, the glorious doctrine of election. And you know what? I've already purchased this one. I've purchased this one with the precious, with my precious blood that was shed on a cross. Our glorious doctrine of redemption. And not only that, I I have not, from Jesus' perspective, enslaved them, purchased them to be enslaved to me, but rather to be my sons and my daughters. The glorious doctrine of adoption. And yeah, he or she will be quick to run out after other lovers, lesser lovers that won't satisfy but I'll continue to set a hedge about this one. I'll continue to disrupt this one's lives so that they turn and look at me. I will allure them. I will do whatever it takes until they are secure in my kingdom that is coming. The reality of this book is we are Gomer. God married us before we were all cleaned up, and we're still not all cleaned up. We're still unfaithful. But God continues to pursue because of his faithfulness. And it does beg the question for us. In the same way that we see in this story, God separated 
sought to separate out Gomer from the temptations that she would rush back into. What are the things that we're tempted to rush to that will lead us astray, that we need to separate ourselves from? What has taken up too much of our time, our energy, our dependence, and our love apart from God? And then there's these, there's verse 5. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come in fear to the Lord and to the goodness, into his goodness in the latter days. So here's this promise, if I could just summarize this. The children of Israel, it's those under the old covenant who looked to God in faith as, as their savior. And it's those of us under the new covenant who look to Christ alone as our Savior. And what does God say? They will seek the Lord and David their king. David their king. There was a covenant established with David that from David would come the one true king who would sit on an everlasting eternal throne. God made, faith, God made good on that promise of the covenant with David. And we celebrate the arrival of this king every year at this time in Advent, the one who took on flesh and dwelled among us. And so here's what I want to do to end this. What does Hosea have to do with Advent? <laughs> yeah, everything. And if you've ever had this experience, like growing up at a swimming pool, if you ever had a friend that like rapid fire splashed water in your face and it was so annoying, I'm going to rapid fire Hosea at you various verses, and my goal is not to be annoying, to make you happy, and to actually prepare us for what Advent is all about. So Hosea chapter 1, 10 and 11, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, that's the promise to Abraham, which cannot be measured or numbered, and the place where it was said of them, you are my people, or you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head, that's Jesus, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. That go up from the land could be an imagery for the exodus, and there's even a greater exodus, a deliverance from sin and oppression. Chapter 2, verse 15. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a day of hope. Valley of Acre, what's that about? This goes back to Joshua chapter 7. There was a sin done by one individual that got, brought God's wrath on the whole community, but that sin was dealt with on that one individual so that God's wrath was averted from all of God's people. The Valley of Acre, translated the Valley of Trouble, that's the cross. That's the cross. And that produced the door of hope through Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 16 through 20. And on that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I will make a covenant for them on the day that the, or I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me in forever. 
I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. That is right there all about Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. This is quoted in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus fulfilled this. The even greater exodus, not from Egypt, but out of slavery, of darkness and sin. And then 11 verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Places of judgment. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. Instead of coming in wrath, God chose to come as a baby in a manger with the hope and the glory of the gospel. And then verse 13, verse 4, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. To that I just say amen. And finally, chapter 14. As I read a section of 14, if you could, just uh, want us to focus on the table in front of us. Verse 4. I will heal their apostasy, and I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I, do, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. So as we come to the table... We see the glory of the book of Hosea. It is all about Jesus. All of God's promise in Jesus. And so as we come to the table, I think back to our college days when a group of us were dating. And we would talk about the need for Christians to have DTRs so that everybody's on the same page. DTR, define the relationship. So Jose is all about relationship, right? Relationship between God and his people. And so here's the question, the DTR, define the relationship. This morning, do you know him? Not just know about him. Do you know Jesus in this sense that you have bowed your hearts, you bowed your knees to him as you, as your savior, and in your life, if people look at your life, they could see he is your Lord. Do you know him? If not, I would ask that you not take of this table, but to contemplate the cross. But if the, the other question would be this, 
Are you committed? If you know him, are you committed to him? And what does that look like? Because as we see here clearly, the Lord is committed to us. That commitment was so strong it cost the body and the blood of Jesus, his death for us. On the night that our Messiah was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, told his disciples, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, gave this to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what are we declaring as we declare the Lord's death. What are we declaring? God's promise, I will be your God. I will be faithful. And you are called to be my people. We are called to be faithful. And with that, let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you meet us at the table in a way that strengthens our faith. Grow us, we pray, in the knowledge of your glorious grace that we would see even this morning the desperate sins of Gomer, and yet the glorious grace of the gospel that shines through. I pray that you would give us a hope that would sustain us. So we pray that you'd take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we know that you are with us. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.